everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, hey, Seb. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone, indeed. So we, uh, we have a great episode to uh, share with you, and we're going to share some of our reactions from the interview that we just did with Paul Earnshaw. But before we do that, Glenn, why don't you let everybody know how they can contact us? Of course. So on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. At Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change. And for questions, ideas, or uh, information on training, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Very good. Thank you. And yep, as always, please send us any uh, requests, any questions. We, uh, we have had some recent podcast episodes that were recommendations from people and, and, and future episodes that we're trying to schedule also from, uh, from people's ideas. So please send those our way. Glenn, we uh, just had a great talk with our good friend, Paul Earnshaw. And uh, what's, what's a, a highlight or two that, that comes up for you? Yeah, it was a very interesting conversation. And I suppose the, the main takeaway for me is that that idea that understanding people is fundamental to good helping. But Paul invited us to consider what he described as social empathy, which is really understanding the impact of the circumstances, the social structures and equalities that a client may be experiencing in their life. And to understand that as we endeavor to assist them, explore and consider change of a particular behavior. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, you, don't, you contrasted the individual empathy, the understanding of somebody's struggles with a particular behavior yeah. and, and barriers to change and things like that to kind of widen that lens to understand the social context and, and to express empathy in that way. Yeah. And, and he used a lovely metaphor, but he talks about a trellis and we expanded that to look, think about the trellis in the garden. And he describes the soil as the circumstances which from which someone grows, but also to recognize society is is part of that context that for some people, their contexts are really quite poisoned by the environment that they live in. And it's very difficult to grow in a meaningful way in that poisoned environment. And then the challenge for us as practitioners is how do we respond to that reality for them? And he, he talked an awful lot about how in his trainings, people are reluctant to look at that because they describe it as politics, and he's just inviting us to go, look, this is not politics, this is actually a scientific fact. These are the circumstances, and what happens when we either choose not to notice or when we do choose to notice. What, what would you take? Yeah, so uh, the listeners will hear that it's it's almost like a two-part episode where Paul talks a lot about his past work incorporating MI with cognitive behavioral therapy, some of his past clinical work and his research uh, was, uh, you know, it was in that realm. And, um, and then he was talking about MI and the social context. And it struck me that there were examples in both of those topics about blind spots, you know, places where we might, might not see a particular important part of the work. Uh, a particular barrier to change or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, in the first one, he was saying how, how MI has helped inform cognitive behavioral therapy. And one of the ways it has done that is by really emphasizing the relational pieces that kind of lend themselves to help a CBT practitioner uh, respond to discord or resistance or whatever that might be. And, and, Maybe in some of the original writings and trainings of CBT, there was a bit of a blind spot about how to how to actually repair some of those, you know, relational challenges. And then with the discussion about MI in a social context, uh, it was quite clear that you know it's just emphasizing the importance of some of these blind spots that a, an individual practitioner might have when trying to apply an individual uh, intervention. That you know, if we don't keep track and, and appreciate the context that that person lives in, their social situation, their community, even their histories, that that's a blind spot that could make our work much less effective. Yeah, it's just that openness to there's things I might not see and what are they and how do I take them into account? And and, and Paul, as he finishes the episode, says, look, this is a journey he's, he's still on, that he's still working on that, he's still exploring 
the, the political with the small p aspect of helping and how to bring it into trainings that he's having and, and even in his, in his writings he's he's exploring the different pieces that he's going to be writing in the future so it's a really good episode we hope you enjoy it hello paul welcome to the podcast we're really excited to talk with you today i said well why don't we get started like we often do just hearing a bit about you what you do and what your uh your early mi story was Okay. Um, just say thanks very much for inviting me to come along. Uh, I'm looking forward to, um, I, I hope, an interesting discussion. Um, my perspective on MI really comes from, I think, my initial exposure to it was through CBT. So I've kind of carried with me a kind of CBT perspective on MI, but also thinking about it, I've had a few different careers, and one of them was a mental health social worker. And that, in some ways, I think, introduced me to Rogerian concepts. So it's quite an interesting mix when I came to CBT, and particularly working with CBT for psychosis. And I basically got a job in a research trial that was researching whether it was useful to integrate MI with CBT for psychosis. So I learned MI by working with people who had a diagnosis of psychosis and were also uh, experiencing substance misuse uh, problems. So, yeah, I, and, and I think after that, I mean, a very potted history, is that I think through that process of learning MI, I uh, became interested in the MINT network and learning even more about MI and in training others. So uh, I think it was 2005, I did my mint training in, uh, in Amsterdam. And um, yeah, and I, I guess I've developed my interest in MI. And as I said, largely through a CBT and uh, MI integration uh, sort of perspective from that time on. I can't say more about that. Well, absolutely. And, and we are interested in more, hear more about that. And I guess... For a lot of people, it'll be that interest in that the fact that of these two separate interventions working hand in hand and a, a, that relationship that they had. And, and I suppose if you could tell us a bit more about that, Paul, about, you know, what was it you noticed about MI and CBT that was similar and what was it about MI and CBT that was yeah. different and, and how did they work as partners? Well, that those questions are something that's occupied me now for quite a long time. And I think, I mean, I continue to develop my thinking around that by developing training and testing some of that out in um, in the Mint Forum uh, with my colleague Rory Allett. And later, I did some work. Uh, Rory Allett, who's a um, he's a, a, a clinical psychologist working in early intervention services in uh, in Manchester. And then later uh, with Sylvie Narking, um, who's a, a well-known uh, researcher in the, the Mint Network, who we, together were interested in sort of looking at precisely those questions, you know, the similarities uh, and differences between MI and uh, CBT, but also thinking about how they go together and also how you train people to do that. So uh, and I then pursued that further um, by a few years ago, I, I engaged in a, a doctoral research project where I looked at the integration of MI and CBT um, and originally uh, tried to do that through a, a, a little randomized control trial. But in the end, I ended up doing some qualitative research that interviewed people who were experts in this integration. So people who'd done this in therapy, in, in practice, in um, in real life services, but also people who designed research trials in motivational interviewing cognitive behavior therapy. So I asked them both what they felt about, I suppose in a way, what MI was adding, but also what they understood as the most important mechanisms uh, of action that were coming in from MI and maybe how CBT was complementing that. So getting their perspectives on um, how those two things work together uh, was was my main emphasis. So this would be uh, interesting to even go further here. Uh, you know, for the many would know this perhaps, but uh, motivational interviewing, of course, being an approach that is 
it isn't non-directive. There's a bit of direction involved, but it is, um, it's, it, it can often feel as if you're kind of lining right up to where the client is and, and, you know, at times following perhaps guiding, whereas, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is an approach that again, not all, it isn't always directive, but it, it can have a more structured session by session, not scripted necessarily, but maybe a more directive um, feel to it. So the idea that you can blend these two methods together might seem counterintuitive. And uh, so what, what did you discover about how they might complement each other and how they can work so well together? Well, there's, I, I think quite a lot is the answer to that question. I would say the overall perspective of people I've worked with and trained, but also people I did the research with, was that MI was adding something to CBT that really wasn't there. And I think the main two things uh, was stuff around detail on how the therapeutic relationship should work. And also uh, the other things would be, I think, operationalizing and defining how to respond to discord or resistance and um yeah they had you know fascinating ideas on those but those are some uh, but but also i think the adding in of the mi spirit and particular elements of mi spirit into cbt practice and i've trained a lot of cbt practitioners in mi as well and they overwhelmingly welcome it as a kind of well, lots of different things. It could be a lot of different things to them, but they they all mention, I suppose, different elements of MI, and and they rarely talk about what CBT is adding to MI, which I I think is quite interesting in itself, uh, because now I think the norm, if you if you look at the research, is that the norm is to integrate MI with other approaches, and CBT is the main therapeutic modality. It's the one that is on offer. Uh, whether that's right or wrong is another question, but um, I, I think you know the norm for MI now seems to be integration. I see less and less standalone uh, studies of MI, and more and more of MI being integrated with other approaches. And it's interesting that you that you raise that and and give re, mention the spirit. And I wonder is that what we're really talking about? Is is that we're exploring the idea of integrating the spirit of MI? into the practice of other approaches, which takes into account the conscious awareness of the practitioner on the, the importance of the relationship, the conscious awareness of the practitioner on, on how they think about things and that strength-based approach where we're not necessarily, while we are aware of issues and problems for the clients, that that's not our primary focus, that we're taking into account the strengths, the talents, the abilities of the other person, the use of affirmations, the the trust in the other person for us to use evocation in in our conversations. Is that too simple a way of understanding, Paul, or is there something else? Is there more reflective listening in an integrated uh, CBT with MI, or is it more about the, the relational aspects that MI brings? I, I think there's a lot in, in your question, uh, Glenn. Uh, and like I said, I've trained a lot of CBT people in MI. So uh, I think... I would be very careful in saying that it's just MI that brings these things. So, you know, CBT talks about collaboration. It talks about um, very much a listing from people, their own solutions. And I think also CBT over the time that I've been working with CBT and MI has changed uh, quite a bit. I think it's become I want to say it's become more person-centered, but I think it's become more aware of the fact that it doesn't really specify elements of the relationship, if you like, a working or therapeutic relationship. And I think and that was definitely one of the things that came out of discussions I had with people, was that the relational aspects are well-specified and valued and researched in motivational interviewing. And they... You know, they do seem to be boosting, if you like, relational factors. And I think that was consistent about what people have said. And it's my experience as well, I think, that, you know, we've had this thing about relational versus technical. 
elements in, in multinational interviewing. And some people call that a theory. I don't think it really is a theory. I think it's a it's an idea that is kind of a, a hypothesis, but you don't really do one thing or the other. So, you know, relational aspects and technical aspects are, are very similar. I think good reflective listening, as you mentioned, is a very technical thing to do in some ways. I think learning it requires uh, quite a lot of practice to develop that skill. Some people are better than others. But I think, you know, specifying the details of the relationship is something that CBT doesn't really do. But I think MI does. And I think that's very much one of its strengths. Uh, And that consistently comes out that people sort of say, this is really what it's adding uh, to uh, CBT. And I I did lots and lots of different trainings. But I always remember the... uh, Al Arkowitz, who is a, a, a psychotherapy researcher who's also involved in the Mint Network, um, he talked about uh, MI uh, rehumanizing CBT. Now, I think things have gone on a lot since then. And I have to say that some of the, I present often present similarities and differences to people, and they go, no, that's not right. I'm not having that. So it's, um, it's a delicate argument, I, uh, or it doesn't have to be an argument. It's a delicate issue sometimes. But I, I think on balance, I would say that particularly that and also relational ways in which to respond to discord and repair fracture in relationships are two of the distinctive things uh, for me and it, it, by integrating MI with CBT practice. As you were talking about the these relational factors and perhaps the specific use of reflective listening, I, I was trying to think like, what else... What else would it be, maybe even from the more technical aspects of MI? And again, the CBT hardliners might disagree with what I'm about to say too, but I feel like in it, when, you're, when you're doing MI, you're obviously involved with the relational aspects of the MI spirit, but your, your attention is so finely tuned to change talk and all the, the different layers of that, why someone might make a change, what are the best reasons for them to do it, how they might do it. I think there's perhaps maybe a more explicit effort to unpack change and what that person's seeking in the work that they're showing up for. And, and again, here's where the CBTers may disagree in my training in CBT, which was many years ago, it, it felt like once you've established the target or the diagnosis, then you're kind of off and running with providing the rationale and the psychoeducational pieces early on and how cognitive restructuring might fit with addressing someone's, you know, trauma reactions or, or whatever it might be. And you might run the risk of losing sight of what the client's reasons for change are. And so I, I don't know, I just, just a, a hunch here as, as I've been listening to you. But no, and I, I've, I agree with that. I, I think there I think there are probably different types of CBT and some of it is more manualized and, but also I think there were attempts to manualize MI as well. So, and I think manualized MI didn't really work. And yet research protocols would demand that people produce manuals and they, and they work to uh, very clear guidelines about what they're delivering. And it's the same in CBT. I think some CBT practitioners, and I think at a base at a basic level, I think the most dominant form of CBT um, seems to be in well, it's 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 the work of RNT Beck, and a lot of that has been located in what we call primary care services here. So they have more they have stricter protocols about what they deliver, if you like. But I think. My my work was more at a secondary level. Uh, I'm not saying it's higher or anything, but it's just kind of um, it, it, it can be more complicated. And I think CBT for psychosis, a lot of that is a lot more person centered and is a lot more it's a lot more based on formulation. So it's about understanding the person as a whole and spending more time finding out about them. So in some ways it has similarities uh, to MI in, in, in that way. But even though that's not specified in MI, I think you could work at a very superficial level around a behavior change once you've identi- identified the target level, uh, sorry, the target behavior. So 
you know, that there, there, there are lots of similarities and lots of differences. And I think some of it's about how it's practiced, but also about what becomes the the dominant form in, in your services. So there's a lot of criticisms of CBT in the UK and that it, it seems to become quite functional in that it, it can be quite manualized, like you say, and, and very focused on this is the direction we must take now. Uh, we can evaluate uh, with people the uh, validity of their thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's all very valid and has been very useful. But I, I, I suppose I'm a little bit wary about too far down the like a, a critical route with CBT. Uh, and I've found more that I've found is that CBT practitioners, I don't know why, some of them anyway, really value importing MI. And that's all of MI. I think it's the values of MI. It's the spirit of MI. It's the technical skills. You know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, a listing and uh, a reinforcing change talk. But although each, each sometimes I find that people pick and choose uh, what they want and they'll have more emphasis on one or the other. It was interesting. I talked to a lot of practitioners about the integration and they said for them, and this might have just been their bias and maybe why they were attracted to MI, was the relational components were much more important to them. Yeah. Now, there's a long standing debate about that and, you know, the, the stuff around you know, whether we should be more focused on change talk, uh, eliciting it and softening sustained talk, or whether there's something about the relationship itself, which is, which is a very difficult thing to achieve. A good working relationship is very difficult to achieve. But overwhelmingly, that's where they came down. And that's what they said was really good for their CBT practice, along with lots of other things, you know, like the, the skills, the philosophies, the, you know, the strategies that could be integrated into uh, into cbt and i in the middle of the um midas trial the um the first thing i was involved in the integration of cbt for psychosis one one evening i sat in the garden uh, uh talked to my wife and we were talking about this integration i mean she has an interest in it and um i was looking at the plants in my garden i was looking at the trellises and uh she came up with this idea of MI as a trellis, as a kind of structure on which other approaches can grow, like plants. And I think some plants would be more compatible with climbing up than others. Yeah. And um, and I, I think I've and, and that's the way I've seen it since that kind of integrated framework, which again is something that uh, Hal Arkovitz talked about. But that idea of having a structure that you can actually hang other interventions on. And I think that's actually the way a, a lot of those people have used MI. It's not the be all and end all, it's not everything, but it's a structure that's there all the time once you've integrated it. Yeah, quite an interesting uh, metaphor there, Paul. And what strikes me is the idea that what makes MI and CBT or MI and any other approach or any integration of any approaches at work is, is that it comes down to whether that the practitioners themselves are working towards that shared outcome, which is the benefit of the client, or whether it is that they are dogmatic about the approach, this is the way we've got to do it. And mm. it sounds like from what you're saying is that there are places where, you know, that functional, me almost mechanical way of delivering an intervention can work really well, perhaps in a primary care setting where people come along, service users come along, with the expectation that they will, they will meet an expert who will tell them what to do, and because of that, they follow that process. Whereas in other in other places, the relationship is much more important because the individual himself is is struggling with their own sense of autonomy or their own sense of agency, and that they're 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 fighting against the system that is telling them what to do and it's, and it's not working, and but they're still looking for something else. And there, that's where the flexibility of the practitioner becomes even much more important. And that's where the spirit of MA offers that openness to that possibility to, to respond to discord with, with curiosity, not to fight back, not to argue. And you mentioned that the, the importance of that working relationship. And I'm just wondering, you know, on your journey then, Paul, what have you learned about what makes a good working relationship? Well, we talk about therapeutic alliance and we talk about working alliance and all those kinds of things. And uh, and I think lots of people have specified that. So I, I'm kind of reluctant to give that kind of answer. So I think I'm 
you know, being there, I think being honest, uh, being there for people, you know, and very much trying to identify with them what what it is they need help with and what you can contribute to that. And I think I've probably been like that even before MI, but I think MI exposed me, well, not entirely, but exposed me to ideas about what effective therapeutic relationships are like. And I think they've been well documented. I think Bill Miller and Theresa Moyer's book, the most recent one, Effective Psychotherapists, uh, sums it up quite well. I think for me, the, the elements of the MI spirit that are, are really important, and as I said, you know, I'm really talking about you know, partnership, collaboration, listening to people well, listing from them what they want and what their thoughts are. And, you know, you can say why, you know, being accepting is a good idea and it is. And I think the, the other things that I think I've been acutely aware of in thinking about, again, what MI adds to CBT is considerations about the person's wider social context. So for me, developing an understanding with that person about what their life is really like, not coming in with this individualized psychotherapy or individualized work around one particular problem, but trying with them to look beyond what it is they're presenting you with. And and I've always called that, you know, putting things in a social context. So understanding you know, and that's my social work background, which I guess I haven't really mentioned because I, I was a mental health social worker for probably as long as I was a, a therapist. And um, I think, you know, having that mindset, you know, really understanding how difficult it is for people to make change, given where they come from, given where you're seeing them. I don't tend to see people in nice clinics. I tend to see people in their houses, which often aren't very conducive for conversations. So, yeah trying to develop an understanding of the person, where they've come from, where they are now, what the challenges are in their life, um, rather than thinking about, well, what you need to do is change the way you're thinking about this and uh, change your feelings, and then maybe your behaviour will be able to change. You know, it's like, let's look at practically what you need sorting out before you can sit down with somebody and say, do you know what, I'd like to, uh, I think I might like to work on my drinking, you know, or uh, I'm a bit depressed, I'd like to understand that better. So, yeah, fundamentally making sure that people, that you understand where people are at when you meet them. Before I ask my question, I have to make a brief comment about the trellis story. Oh, yeah. Which which is our good friend, Jeff Brecken, who was on an earlier podcast episode. So he and I have done a few trainings in our work with, with uh, athletes and sport. And he always brings up the trellis. Okay. And, and he references you and, and Rory Allen in a paper, yeah. I guess, that you all wrote. And it's just wonderful to know the, the true author, the, the true author behind the authors there was your, was your wife who brought up probably, the trellis idea. Probably. So, Being so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thankful. And next time I'm with Jeff and he says, it's you guys, <laughs> I'm going to say, actually, no, it was Paul's wife. Yeah. So well, this I idea think I had, that, I had some part of the conversation, but sure. Know. Sure. Well, okay. I mean, we can yeah. add a third author there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Earnshaw, Earnshaw and Alec, or I don't know, whatever the order is, but, but anyway, yeah. so as far as the social context, yeah. So, I, I guess I'm just trying to think somewhat in practical terms as, as you and, and others are, are kind of widening the lens around a person and their target behavior or the, their presenting problem, as it were, that, that there's developing an understanding of where a drinking problem, the context of where a drinking problem resides, right? Is there, is there some, practical shift though that might also occur where as you're widening that lens and and generating a a broader understanding of a person who's coming to see you where you might make different choices in terms of what your clinical focus might be I guess or is it is it simply just sort of not that that is simple but is it just better understanding the presenting problem and that informs your treatment in a different way. Really, really good questions. And I, I think it's kind of both things really in some ways. I think sometimes 
and and it's quite interesting this it's really for me um exposes a difference between a lot of the clinical research that takes place with people and a lot of the real world practice so we get handed down these interventions which we are told at work yeah and then we take them into the community and we can't and that applies to cbt and mi and you can't get past the fact that basically people have not had their basic needs met and also at some level they've not as part of engaging with people demonstrating that you understand how it's been difficult for them or you know where a lot of their current coping behaviors are coming from so let's take a more of a historical perspective but i think it's also more of a social perspective you know so what's happened to you what's your life been like that you've ended up here yeah rather than you've got this problem i've got this intervention let's work with that yeah so and i think it doesn't apply across the board but i think like take cbt as an example i think often the thing is right we've got this you don't need to go through your childhood you don't need to go through your history we can just change your thinking and things will be better yeah and i think to a certain extent that's the same with mi yeah it's like, well, there's all that stuff out there, but there's nothing we can do about that. So let's focus on the change you want to make, yeah? Without looking either back or sideways or around you to see either where this originates or how you can go about changing it, you know, looking for resources outside of the individual one-to-one interaction. It's a very old idea that, you know, the... The, the therapeutic hour or 50 minutes or whatever it is now, it's probably 20 minutes, you know, it, it's just that. It's a it's a bubble that lasts for that length of time. And then that person has to go back to their real life. So I, I think, you know, I've always been acutely aware of that. And I think for some people, it's a bit like, well, what can you do? There's nothing you can do outside of this. Um, but I actually just think the practice, and I, I recently came across a few different ideas some of which came out of the research i did around psychological safety uh, but also i think uh, there was a recent presentation at one of the uh, the men uh, forums uh, by a, gay, a guy called david aruk i think it was it's part of a, res- a social work research group in the states who were talking about socially engineered traumas and how that affects people and i think what you're really talking about is that the environments people live in are causing trauma. They are traumatic environments. And people come to us with the responses that they're making in, to the trauma they're experiencing. And that trauma could be a whole range of different things, you know, but they're, they're not separate. I don't think they should be separate from the therapeutic process. Um, or, you know, any conversation, it, it it's a bit like if we just focus on this and we don't accept that there's stuff going on out there, uh, that we know that people are disproportionately affected by discrimination, by sexism and racism. And, you know, and I think uh, David was talking about the effects of neoliberalism as a system that basically that structures inequality and I'm not saying we can change that through the therapeutic relationship, but I think what we can do is we can we can bring it in there. We can acknowledge it. It's a bit like you, you wouldn't say to somebody, you know, oh, well, you know, that must be terrible, but there's nothing we can do about that. It's just showing that you know can be helpful. And I think in a way, you know, MI has always stayed away from uh, the social context. In fact, it's it's promoted itself as an individualised therapeutic intervention. And um, you know, and as, as, as sought not to uh, not to change that really, because it sees it as beyond its limits. And you can get into a political discussion about things there, but I think for me, it's about <clears throat> it's about facts. It's about you know that we. I think it, I always remember I used to bring up things about social inequality, and people would go, "Oh, that's politics." It's not. It's a fact. It's a scientific fact. Yeah, and I think if we're not. You know, so if you've been political, no, no, I have some science here and I want to share it with you. We have tons and tons of science that shows that's the case. So why wouldn't you take that into account when you're working with people would be my question. Yeah, so the word environment 
keeps coming up for me as we listen then. Interestingly, the idea of the trellis extended for me is that if the environment is the garden and the relationship is part of that garden, but that the trellis is that it's almost like the therapeutic time that we have can be used as almost like to identify the the what and the how that can grow in this environment. Yeah. And that the, the client's presentation is really important to be understood as a form of communication and really to recognize the impact that it has on the practitioner. Do do we as in an MI way, can we respond to resistance with curiosity rather than digging in and and reinforcing a perspective? But also that acknowledging of the inequalities and really importantly our potentially our part in that that the system that we belong to, whether I'm a social worker or nurse or any other practitioner, that I, I'm part of a, a wider structure that is limited by the policies and procedures and uh, resources. And even just that willingness to go, look, this is unfair, that, that this is all we can offer you. And acknowledging yeah. that the, the client's experience is, you know, there's, I need much more than this and you can't give it to me. And the, the courage and the authenticity of a practitioner to go, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's, it. This feels really unfair. But then to work with, now what do we do in this unfair place that can be resourceful for you? And how might you respond to this unfairness in a way that's going to work for you? And to work in that relationship and acknowledging this is a dirty place. This is unfair. Yeah. So now what? But to do it when we're, to continue to work in collaboration, not to not to take their their judgments or criticisms of us personally, because as you say, it's scientifically proven that it's probably true. We are contributing to some of the limitations of this human being's potential to grow. But we're also offering the opportunity to go taking that into account. How can we work together in a way that you can find useful, or what could grow here? that you could yeah. use in a way that's going to that's going to benefit you, that it's not going to take you out of poverty overnight, but it's yeah. going to help you feel much more resourced or confident in yourself or help you to deal with your behaviours or your relationship with your children in a way that will be more meaningful for you. Yeah, I, I, I and I think that's one of the strengths of MI. So I, 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 there's all kinds of ways you can be critical of approaches, but I think... Uh, I'm not being critical. I think MI is very good at doing precisely the things that you're talking about, Glenn. I think it does, it helps to provide a space uh, which is safe. And if you think about basic human needs, some kind of safety is one of them. And, you know, that goes back to Maslow's ideas around creating safety. I think uh, I like you, I like you taking the analogy further. I've, I've, I've always insisted doing this, you know, like the, um, the soil could be the practitioners, but equally the soil in the trellis analogy could be society, as you say, you know, and if that's a very poisoned and toxic soil, it's going to be quite difficult for anything to grow in. So, you know, working with that and understanding is really important, but also that, and I think maybe this is why MI has, has been really good at working with people who are disenfranchised. I think people who are oppressed and marginalized it seems to work quite well in those groups, you know, and that for me is kind of a, that ra it raises the question of why is that the case? Why is it that we're able to create safety through MI? What are we doing in MI relationships that create safety? Uh, and I think one of those things is actually around power. So we've already talked about the power that's operating in people's lives, but they come to see us and we say, yeah, we get that, right? We understand that. That must be terrible. And, and we can explore that further and we can talk about that. But in, and in doing so, along with the style and the spirit of MI, I think we seed power. We yield to people and say, we're showing to you that this is a, a safe space. And if you can create that safety, and I think what you create is psychological flexibility in people. So people talk about mechanisms of change. And one of the definitions I've used is that basically – you know, it's about freeing people up cognitively. It's about, you know, what goes on between the the the, the client and the and the practitioner. That's the mechanism, and if that's helping to free up, I mean, I think safety could be one of those mechanisms that helps 
people to free up their thinking to a point at which they can consider alternatives and look for different ways of, of dealing with their life. Like you said, it's not going to change overnight, but they might be able to change some things. And I think that's what one of the things MI is really good at. And I'm quite encouraged around discussions around power in, in MI, because I think that's where I got to with my research, my writing, was that I thought that we're not really defining power. It's not defined anywhere in MI, yeah? And we're now starting to talk about MI as empowering. And I think it is. It's an empowering practice. But I think in order to think about empowerment, you probably also need to think about what you mean by power and how that's operating in people's lives. So, yeah, that's a that's a hobby horse of mine. That's where I've sort of gone down that route recently. And I think the key to that is actually that broader or deeper understanding. I forget who coined the, coined the phrase, but I think something like social empathy is a good way of describing that. So you, we have empathy in MI at an individual level. We don't create this social empathy, which is I understand what your life is like and how that must make things difficult for you. So I think adding some a, a, a social um, a sort of element into multiracial interviewing. I, I know there's talk about uh, empowerment being included in the spirit of MI in the next edition, which I've, I've heard is happening. But I'm curious about whether that actually does include discussions about power. I think it's probably more about the style of MI being empowering, which I think it is. It really is a very empowering. But interestingly, I mean, I've, I've sort of just, I'm ranting on a little bit here, but that empowerment thing, I think is something I'm not expert in at all. So from a social work background, that was always really important. We're always taught about, you know, empowerment was a big issue. We were used to argue about what it was because there are lots of different versions of that. And I think that's as a concept, it makes it a bit problematic. But one of the things about empower, MI is very like empowerment uh, theory and empowerment practice. But the thing it misses out is precisely the social context. It, it doesn't, whereas Empowerment theory in social work is also about incorporating understandings of the social context. I'm just, again, thinking about some of the practical elements here. It's so we're to end to coming back to the trellis and the garden and the soil. And, and if part of what's happening is the people that we work with are experiencing toxic soil or toxic environments, and, and it might be because of centuries of, of oppression, it might be, I don't know if you, you would extend it to this. I'm just thinking about many of the clients I work with are teenagers who also are from oppressed backgrounds and poverty and things like that. But just by the nature of being a teenager, you are already in a bit of a one down position, uh, certainly in terms of their experience working with other adults in other healthcare settings and mental healthcare settings, perhaps schools that are very, you know, very much or can be environments where there's a lot of power inflicted on them. And, and so just thinking about one of those mechanisms of change within MI, as we're understanding the social context is when we work with someone in a partnering, accepting empathic, both individually empathic and socially empathic way. Are you saying that perhaps one of the reasons why MI might be helpful thinking of it in that sort of, from that lens is we are, I guess, even for, for, for that bubble of time, we are removing that power hierarchy that people are often under and they experience the world under and and once that's lifted then that might change their experience of the problem behavior of their drinking of their drug use whatever it might be and then it kind of frees them up a bit in a different way to experience the intervention whether it's mi or cbt or what have you is that is that kind of what you're proposing here yeah i think i think mi does that i think that's what mi does yeah um, I think it does. I think Bill Miller describes it as a contrast effect. So if you're in very authoritarian systems and people are being used to talk to in a particular way by the police or by teachers or by whatever, and you present with an MI style of conversation, they're going to look at you and go, well, you're different. Yeah. And that's, that's my experience. My experience of 
you know, practicing MI with a whole range of clients in you know, very difficult circumstances who've been used to being told what to do or that they're, they're no good or they're seriously mentally ill and will be like this for the rest of their life. You present in a way that is empathic and is actively interested in what's going on in their life and sees them as a, a person who can do things, uh, then they're much more likely to do it, in my experience. And um, it's, I, I say, I, that's exactly what MI is good at. But I would also say there's a limit to that. And, and the limit is, if you like, that soil, that environment out there, um, we shouldn't get... Uh, I mean, some people go, I don't want to talk about that. That's uh, too depressing. And I'm a bit like, well, it is a bit, yeah. But actually, it, it's what our clients are dealing with. And, you know, often... I mean, like, in, it, it, I, I did spend a lot of time in therapy and in casework situations as a care manager and wherever else. And you'd have regular supervision sessions. It's a bit like, well, why is this person not doing this? The answer was usually because they're living a shit life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a limit to what we can do. Uh, but what we do, I think, with MI is something really good. I think that's what's really distinctive about it is that it does give that, I think it, it, it does give that opportunity to, to demonstrate a different type of relationship uh, with someone. And it's one that listens, one that takes them seriously and is compassionate and all, all the other things that perhaps people don't get in, in the, the day-to-day life. And whilst that might not be enough for some people, for some people it is. It's really helpful. So, you know, but at the same time, I think we can... And this is, I guess this is something that came out of my thinking and uh, uh, about this, um, was that I think if we don't do what I'm saying, which is take a broader or more a wider social perspective on what's going on for people, that environment, that soil that, that, that you know, they're expected to grow, grow in, then, you know, I think in some ways it's, a, I don't know, it just I feel, it feels really uncomfortable. It's really... It's like blinding yourself to why someone isn't able to do this. And everybody knows, but I think everybody, oh, yeah, we all know that, you know, social factors are really important. But then it's, but well, what can we do? And I suppose I'm still looking for ways in which we can do that. But I think I am talking at an individual level here. I am talking about what you can do in individual relationships that's different. I think adding in that I understand your world. I don't live in it. And that's not the same as accurate empathy is I understood you in our conversation. That's taking that beyond that. So, you know, I think the more we can do that, the more likely we are to avoid, which I think is one of the things that is a criticism of CBT, that individualizing of people's mental health problems kind of obscures why they have them. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, well, yeah, and it's not random. It's like, you know, sometimes people get really badly beaten up or they have serious car crashes or, you know, they've suffered domestic violence and uh, and racist attacks and whatever else. Those things are not random, yeah? They're, they're structural. And, and that's why I mean, some people say, oh, don't talk about that. It's really depressing. We can't do anything about that. But actually, I think we can incorporate it into our understanding and i think we need to incorporate it into our research as well because most of the research for us i can see is randomized controlled trials that do not take into account environmental and social factors there's in my experience i worked in lots of them all we do all they get is psychological assessments no one does a social assessment no one comes and says what's your life like what's your what's your housing like you know what's you know, how are you, are you off financially? Are you getting enough to eat? Nobody does any of that. You come into a psychological research study and you have usually, you have a problematic behavior, yeah? alcohol, drugs, you're overweight, or, you know, you have all kinds of uh, different uh, target behaviors to work on. So I think, I, I, I just feel like it, it's not just MI's fault. I think it's separating off things into individual conversations is 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 not enough and I, and I think the longer i've worked in mental health services the more more i've uh, uh, realized that's the case 
Yeah, and I wonder is part of the reason why helping services are reluctant to look at those things is because those those are the things that helping services are not in a position to do anything about or change. And as helpers, we don't like not being able to help. We don't like not being able to change things for people. But it sounds like in some ways is that it's the simple acknowledgement of our awareness of the circumstances that that in itself is helpful because we're naming the elephant in the room. We're putting it into, look, we see the bigger picture and we're going to work on what we can, but we recognise there are bigger issues for you here and we're going to try and understand that and help us respond in a way that's more compassionate and understanding to you when you behave the way you behave either in your conversations with us or in your in your life between sessions. And earlier on when you were talking about the relationship and and I love that idea of that psychological flex, flexibility and that contrast effect. It, and it reminded me of an episode we, we did with uh, Bill Netto, episode 34, where we looked at the evolutionary psychology, where Bill attempted to explain or offered the explanation that what MI does that's different from other approaches is that it creates a space for an individual to feel safe and in that context, they can then move away from that flight fight of making sure they're trying to be safe that's particularly taking place in the middle brain. And then they shift to, once the middle brain is silenced, the brain knows that it's safe, that we can then enter into the frontal cortex where all the higher thinking can take place. And the client can then begin to work out what it is they can do under these circumstances to move forward in a way that's meaningful, purposeful and ultimately safe. And that's such an important thing, is it? That again, we're not, we're not. Chances are, we're not going to solve the racism and the the social inequalities of the world in a forty five minute forty five minute conversation. But we can ex- help the person explore what would be the next step on your journey in this world that would be meaningful for you, and for the invitation to be for them to identify that 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 evocation. But again, it's that reinforcing you're more likely to get more meaningful responses to that and with a client who feels safe in this time when they're with you to not have to take into account. They're not asking the questions, are you part of the problem? Are you, are you going to criticize me if I tell you what I think? Are you going to stop me talking if I start telling you the ideas that I have that don't fit with your, your script? And if that's not happening, then they can be more creative. They can be more imaginative. And I suppose one of the things to think about then is how then do people who are listening to this podcast, how, how do we encourage and support that broader thinking? You know, for you to get to have got to that place, Paul, what helped you see this bigger picture and be willing to tolerate it and, and more particularly willing to explore it in the conversations you have with your clients? I guess in the beginning, uh, I, I first started working in... Uh psychiatric services my first experience was a psychiatric nurse in um, a large uh, institution and I went into work every day and I talked to people as an unqualified person I came home really really angry <laughs> about why these people were here and what had been going on so and, and I guess there was something in me that was you know and, and I think some of that is around having a, a real commitment to and a sense of uh, of social justice and, uh, and and I think we deserve to live in a better world than we do and I, I was thinking actually what you were just saying about Bill Netto and um, who wrote that evolutionary paper on MI and um, and then Bill Miller's attempt to incorporate some of those ideas and he talked about it as taking the lower place I think there's there's a lot of really good stuff in there and we in psychological therapies we often talk about things like fight or flight or freeze, those kinds of things. And those are old evolutionary ideas, really, which people often we would engage in what you would call psychoeducation about that with people. So in an MI way, would it be okay if I share with you some of the the responses that are likely to happen if you're exposed to the threat? And then you're ending up talking to people about, you know, existing on the African plains and all that kind of stuff. It's all very controversial in some ways, but it's something that is very routinely talked about in, in therapeutic work, say, particularly in CBT. And we call that psychoeducation. So for me, why can't we have socioeducation? You know, so if you grew up in this environment and you have these difficulties in uh, forming attachments and you're in care 
and you, you know, you were a, a, a mixed race child in a white school. Well, of course, these things are really, really important. Yeah. So uh, you call that in, in a way without patronizing people, but we're just normalizing. So in in, in psychology, in psychotherapy, there's a process of normalizing educational information. So I think we could normalize other types of information. And I suppose in a way, uh, that's one of the things I think uh, we could do. But it, it, there's a lot in there. But for me, I think, again, I was very drawn to something that, that Bill Miller said in that paper of his about social injustice and MI. And he said, social injustice makes us all worse off or something like that. I can't remember. It's it sort of uh, diminishes us all. And he's saying, I think MI spirit should go beyond that and actually call for a better world in a way. It's difficult to to crystallise, I, I think, you know, some of, some, some of those ideas in terms of your question, which was about, um, you know, how can other people do this? But I, I think for me, well, anyway, you're asking me how I got to this place. And how I got to this place, I think, was to constantly be curious and committed uh, to information about, you know, where I thought that people's mental health problems were coming from. And that's a whole debate about, you know, the origins of mental health problems. But what we increasingly know, and again, this is acknowledged fact, is that most of the origins of mental health problems are in trauma of one kind or another. And we're now all supposed to be trauma-informed practitioners and we have trauma-informed MI. But I would say, what is that trauma? Often that's the soil, that's the life that people are living is the trauma. So, it, it, and we need a broader change, but we're also, the other thing I did really want to say is that I think also, I think we forget that human beings are endlessly resourceful and in the most dire of circumstances, people, you know, seem to be able to generate um, resources in communities. And, and that's why I think, it, and unfortunately, people have had to do that. If you look at when I started working in mental health services, there were all kinds of resources in communities for people. And now most of those are voluntary sector provision, you know, food banks, uh, you know, temporary homeless shelters, those kinds of things. They used to be standard services, but they're not anymore. And I think people have developed that out of adversity. They've had to do that because the services were done away with. So I think communities contain a lot more resource. And maybe there's an element of if you're working inside services where those things do not exist, then I think you should be saying they should exist. It's not good enough. Yeah. And you should be saying, you know, within your work organisations, this needs to be taken higher up. And they say, oh, it's government. Well, take it to government then, because I'm sick of dealing with the consequences. So, you know, what I would, but, or what I would, some people say, oh, that's political. I would say, well, kind of, but it's also, I'm just telling you what the facts are. I'm telling you that it's really difficult for the following reasons. And um, yeah, that, it's, I suppose I've struggled with that all my life. And perhaps we'll continue to struggle with it because you're really complicated uh, issues and, and challenges. And, yeah. you know, as we're probably needing to transition to our final couple of questions here, but it, it did strike me that there was another practical skill or, or strategy there that, you know, you talked about resourcefulness, that as one is understanding someone's social context and being curious about and respectfully reflecting about the challenges they've experienced that might surround a problem behavior like drinking or drug use or what have you, that in taking a strengths-based view on that person who is showing up to the service that you're providing, somehow they've managed to work through that and they've managed to figure out ways of overcoming to the best of their abilities what they've encountered and using the MI, you know, the particular MI term of affirmation. I mean, there, there provides opportunities to affirm the ways in which somebody has overcome what they've overcome to that point. And then very likely that strength that you identify will benefit them once you do start getting down to the nitty gritty of a particular problem behavior. Anyway, that's just one way that it seems like this sort of under, this appreciation of the social context can shed light on certain strengths that people have that could be useful 
conversationally. So as we're getting close to the end here, Paul, well, you've already shared a lot with us about what is coming up on the horizon for you in terms of the stuff you're thinking about professionally and, and these ties between MI and power and empowerment. But we do like to find out from our guests what is on the horizon for them, what they do have in mind for a project, be it professional or maybe even personal. So um, what's coming up here for you? That's a, that's a good question. I have, I've kind of transitioned from my practitioner lifestyle into one where I am, I'm more involved in, in some research and some writing. I did actually manage to write a book with a colleague uh, called Motivational Cognitive Behaviour Therapy which is about integrating MI with CBT. And I guess I've done some more work, though. I did some work around uh, COVID-19 contact tracing. Um, we put together a project during the pandemic because felt very helpless about that, which, as an aside, I think that shows that public health and broader societal uh, considerations can be very effective in behaviour change, as we found in COVID-19. It wasn't all about vaccines. It was about changing people's behavior so I've got a bit of that going on I'm still writing up some of that and also I've been doing some work uh, with Rory Aller and Steve Rolnick talking about some stuff around writing about working with particularly the client group that I've, I've been describing that I, I learned MI with so doing some work on that and I think also just talking to you today was actually one of the things I was thinking, well, is it worth writing about this stuff? So I was kind of thinking some of the things we're talking about today. I was thinking it might be useful to write something about that. But I kind of, I haven't, it, just with other things on the agenda, I've not got around to doing that. And I can't make a decision about whether that's more important to write something about this or whether I should do some of the other things that um, uh, I, I'm doing. But I've got, yeah, so I've got a few different things going on. I think, I think just trying to make sure that you can't maintain this idea of scientific neutrality. I, I think it's a bit of a myth. I, the, the, no science is neutral. And it's always been a puzzle to me. that. And I, I did a presentation at ICMI, and I think I said at the end of that something like, it's a mystery to me that a social science like psychology, which largely drives motivational interviewing, has no social in it. You know, it's obsessed with this maintaining a neutrality uh, between, I suppose, science and other things, because you might be getting a bit too political. And I think that's a bit of a wild goose chase, as well as being a little bit unethical. So I think that would be my ambition, I think, having just said all of that, just to continue to um, be a bit provocative, but also to, I think, say that that is a legitimate goal, to actually say you know, in this very individualized science to actually say it is worth looking outside of that and it's worth talking to other people. And there are other sets of facts that are not all generated by randomized controlled trials. You know, they can be generated all kinds of other ways, you know, massive surveys, health, you know, health data that's collected regularly. You know, it's all out there, but I think we need you know, my ambition, if you like, is to make sure that we don't just ignore it. We take notice of it. Yeah, and I think just the way you're describing it offers us a, a lovely example of the challenges that human beings experience, which is they have lots of choices, they have lots of desires, but it's been influenced by the very thing that you've been talking about here today, which is your social context and yeah. everything that's going on. And the last point on stuff that we've been talking about, what strikes me is, is that what the social empathy that you've been describing, particularly that last piece about the resourcefulness of human beings, is that it allows us to see the hope in any context and that it's from there that things can change, that the hope springs eternal and that while we, while we as an individual practitioner maintain that hope, that we can begin to help the client experience that in our relationship with themselves and that hope then can and then filter out into the rest so that we ourselves are part of that social context and a stream in the garden. We are a stream of hope weaving its way through this social context that is the soil. But as we finish then, Paul, and, and no doubt there will be people who will be curious and perhaps want to enter into a, a political debate with you about your ideas or come alongside of them, 
if they do, if people have questions or thoughts or reflections on anything you've brought up today, would it be okay for them to reach out to you? And if it is, what's the best way for them to, to contact you? Best way to contact me is my email address, unless you think there's a better way. Um, are you a Twitter? Are you on social media? I do Twitter, but I, I don't tend to do Twitter very professionally. It tends to be me saying what I think about the world. Right. Okay. Um, so if, if you're happy um, enough, if you if you could give us your email address, and if you want to give us your Twitter handle, please do. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll do that. Well, actually, Glenn, you have them both, I think. So you have my permission to share them. So, yeah, and I'd be very interested if people have ideas and i'd also i guess i'm welcome connecting with other people who have similar ideas as well because i've always felt like in a bit of a minority but i do i do know that within mint and around mint uh, but also outside of that arena there are people with similar uh, perspectives so um yeah i'd welcome any any thoughts or contributions from people so is it okay that it's your gmail account that you you would be happy for people to contact you on Paul, and then just for that, then it's it's pg earnshaw at gmail.com. That's right. So be pg e a r n s h a w at gmail.com. That's right. If people want to contact us, they can do that on Twitter. We're at change talking, Seb's at s g k f r o m n c, and I'm at Glenn Hines, and Instagram is talking to change podcast. Facebook is talking to change and email for questions, queries or interest in training is podcast at glennhines.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. We really appreciate Thank it. it really interesting. Uh, thanks for your time. I've really no idea what I was going to say, but um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. All right, man. All right. See you both.